people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Hello, and welcome to ACOM. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a rough ride, dealing with many sensitive and unsavory topics, so we just wanted to put a warning up front. We're going to try to handle all of these topics with sensitivity, but also, honestly, in plain language. And we wanted to let our listeners know that there will be frank discussions of domestic abuse, substance abuse, violence, sexual assault homophobia, and violence against women and LGBT persons. Also, you should be prepared to hear some unsavory things about all the Beatles and Brian Epstein in this episode. We think that this is a very important and good episode on a very necessary topic, but it is totally okay if you just want to enjoy the music and not think about any of this stuff, or if you just are not up for it right now. We're not trying to be overdramatic, but at the same time, we don't want anyone to be caught off guard. So we're putting this warning up front to make sure everybody knows what's coming. Okay, with that warning out of the way, let's explain what we're doing in this episode and why. We've decided to examine, as a sort of case in point, the infamous story of Paul's 21st birthday, where John beat up Bob Wooler and put him in the hospital. I think we need to do this episode because we see a very problematic pattern in how events like these are discussed. Specifically for the event we're talking about today, we see victim blaming Bob Wooler for getting John riled up, excuses made for John's violent episodes, little to no examination of how Brian handled the aftermath of this incident, no acknowledgement whatsoever of the woman that John also attacked at the party. The impact this event would have had on John and Paul's interpersonal and professional relationship, and the impact of these events on the lives of the people in this story. The way we talk about LGBT issues is also in need of a serious makeover. So we're also going to discuss some of the problematic ways Brian is portrayed in Beetledom, and how the Barcelona trip is discussed and portrayed. I see our main goal as pointing out how these incidents are discussed, using a major event in the early history of the band as an example, and then trying to figure out through our panel discussion what we think may be a more constructive way to interrogate these types of events, in a way which gives context, not excuses, and is also fair and respectful of the humanity for all of the very real people who are involved, 
not just the ones who are traditionally positioned as the heroes of the story. In relation to this particular moment in history, we're going to critically examine some of Lenin's and Epstein's behavior, and then we'll have a broader conversation about the wife-beater label and how John Lennon is both sort of unfairly singled out as the only Beatle with a violent or problematic history, which he most definitely is not, but also about the difficulties in defending him when he is, in fact, guilty as charged. This is a terrible incident, and predictably enough, due to the sensitivity of the subject matter, retellings of it vary greatly whenever it is told. The fine details of it are actually slightly murky as well, but we have enough eyewitness accounts to reconstruct the main thrust of things. So just to hit the major points, this was Paul's 21st birthday celebration at his aunt's house in East Liverpool. The date was June 18th, 1963. Their debut album, Please Please Me, had come out and was number one. So the Beatles were hot in Britain, but not yet famous in the rest of the world. Again, this is a McCartney family event hosted and presumably paid for by Paul's extended family in his honor, celebrating his 21st birthday and his new success with the Beatles. This was also the first time that Paul was introducing his new girlfriend, Jane Asher, to the extended McCartney clan. Jane was a beautiful, finely educated movie star, arguably more famous than Paul at that point, and Paul was extremely proud to be dating her and no doubt anxious to show her off to his family. Here's a quote from Cynthia Lennon about them for context. She says, Paul fell like a ton of bricks for Jane. The first time I was introduced to her, she was sitting on Paul's knee. He was obviously proud as a peacock. She was a great prize. And in fact, there are photos from that evening of Paul and Jane together uh, looking very giddy and happy, kind of closely scrunched together and like young lovers. Also in attendance with the Beatles and their family were several other musicians and bands from Liverpool, including a number of Brian Epstein's clients, Billy J. Kramer, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and the foremost who were hired to play the party. Now, um, at some point in the evening, a conversation occurred between John Lennon and Bob Wooler, the compare from the cavern, who is a friend of both the Beatles and Brian Epstein. The actual words exchanged are unknown. Everybody was drunk. Nobody, nobody knows. But the topic was undoubtedly the trip that John had recently taken to Barcelona with Brian. Since Brian was, according to everyone in the Beatles circle, in love with John and was taking him on a private trip to Spain for no explicable reason, uh, rumors about them were rampant. And many accounts claim that Epstein had told his friends about getting to second or third base with John. We'll get into more detail about that in a bit. And since Wooler and Epstein were buddies, Wooler was privy to this information. In any event, it seems that Wooler teased John about the trip, 
and John panicked and went into a violent rage, attacking two guests, sending Waller to the hospital, creating a major PR disaster and potential lawsuit for the Beatles, also ruining his best friend's 21st birthday and creating a horrific scene in front of his new girlfriend and entire extended family. Obviously, how this was documented and discussed in 1963 differs from 1971, differs from 1983, differs from 2001, etc. and on and on. But we want to look at these events through the lens of what we know and believe now, and I think we all need to be able to distinguish between context and making excuses. Unfortunately, I see this all the time. We love to make excuses for our faves, and that definitely applies to the Beatles, and probably all celebrities, and politicians, and real people we know, for that matter. It's totally understandable, and to a certain extent, it's inevitable, right? Because learning bad things about people we like creates cognitive dissonance, and we want to go on liking the stuff we like, and the people we like, so we make excuses as a way to resolve that. I completely understand it, Everybody does it, even if it's unconscious, so we're not shaming anyone about it. But if we want to do better, we need to stop making excuses for bad behavior and accept that people do bad things, including people who make great art that we love and enjoy. On the other hand, it's always good to have context, right? Because Mm -hmm. context helps us understand why People maybe did the things they did and made the bad choices they made because we all make bad choices. We all do things we regret. And in the Beatles' case, things we wish millions of people did not know about. (laughs) The Beatles were and still are under an unnaturally massive amount of personal scrutiny. And that's a very difficult thing to live with. For anyone, let alone people who are given tons and tons of power and money and drugs and Mm. sex and just, you know, have an invitation to abuse anyone they want, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. It's a really hard and unnatural position to be put in. Yeah. And as we've discussed before, These guys grew up in a much more racist, violent, homophobic, misogynistic era where, you know, otherwise decent men often hit their wives or kids to keep them in line. Racist jokes were considered harmless fun by the people who told them and laughed at them. Fathers were generally expected to be providers rather than loving, present caregivers stuff like that. Anyway, I think our challenge is to try to understand and empathize with the Beatles and their associates, but at the same time, not make excuses for their behavior. So there are a few different elements we need to parse out here, and we'll just go chronologically. First is the backstory of the party, which is John and Brian's trip to Barcelona and what occurred there. If you ever leave me, I'd be sad and blue. Don't you ever leave me, I'm so in love with you. 
Now, with the obligatory disclaimer that none of us were there and that there is no official account of what happened, we basically know what happened, right? (laughs) Brian invited John on an intimate holiday for two weeks while the other three Beatles cooled their jets in Tenerife. Many people, including Paul and John to a certain extent, suggest that John accepted the trip as a political move to gain favoritism with Brian and maybe do a little bit of backroom dealing and that it may have sealed the decision to permanently keep John's name first in the Lennon-McCartney publishing. I was pretty close to Brian because if somebody's going to manage me, I want to know them, you know, inside out. And the, the period when he told me he was a fag and all that, I, I introduced him to pills, you know, which... It gives me a, a guilt association for his death. I mean, they go that way anyway. And uh, to make him talk, you know, to find out what he's like. It's also very likely that John was interested in a sexual experience with Brian out of his own desire or curiosity, whether that's because he was personally attracted to Brian or just wanted to experience some gay sex and found this convenient. Again, it's impossible to say. But it was most likely a mix of both things. On the one hand, a desire to express his sexual interest in men, or Brian, if you believe that John was into Brian, and also a desire to gain a better position in the band. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it's very difficult to get a clear sense of the Brian and John relationship. John has been both really dismissive and callous about Brian, like he was in 1970. Brian was very hard to live with you know to take he had a lot of tantrums and things like that uh like most fags do you know they're very insecure the one i hate is the way they're all attacking alan and brian was a nice guy but he 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 knew what he was doing he robbed us you know he fucking took all the money and looked after himself and his family you know and all that and it's just a myth i hate the way that alan is attacked and brian is made like an angel just because he's dead And he's also been very kind and affectionate about him, like he was in 1980. Brian was a a beautiful guy, Brian Epstein, and he was an intuitive, theatrical guy, and he knew we had something he presented as well. Likewise, there are multiple stories of John being verbally abusive and anti-Semitic towards Brian, but there's also stories of him being very sweet and kind sending him flowers, saying, you know I love you, after Brian's suicide attempts in 1967. Also in 1967, shortly after one of those suicide attempts, there was an account from someone involved in the Magical Mystery Tour of John holding Brian's hand, sitting on Paul's sofa, I think. Hmm. Um, Which does sound very kind and very sweet, you know, like it definitely sounds like they are friends and that he cares for him. Yeah, a lot of accounts kind of stipulate that Brian and John did kind of have elements of both, you know, friendly, positive and affectionate things in their friendship and relationship. And then also butt heads at times and John could be very aggressive towards him. Yeah. Yeah, like I think they vacillated between, you know, having a mutual affectionate friendship and then also they were at odds with each other at times well and i've also heard people claim 
that Brian liked it when John was mean to him, you know, yeah. like, like he really got off on it and like yeah. the nastier and meaner and more anti-Semitic and more degrading John was that Brian liked it. Yeah. And I honestly, like, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I don't yeah. know how true that is. Right. I, you know, there's a lot of that was in the Goldman book and his whole thing was to frame everything about John and Brian in a really tawdry way. Right. Yes, but it's not just Goldman, though, because Tony Barrow has accounts of, like, John coming into the office and, like, grabbing uh, his nuts. Grabbing his nuts and, like, Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about Tony Barrow's story about the nut grabbing. He's, like, their publicist. Tony Barrow writes in his book in 2005 that when Epstein started managing the band, he demanded, particularly John, be respectful, which John mostly was. However, he describes one weird incident in his book. He writes this. This respect did not stop him verbally thrashing Epstein and occasionally attacking the man physically without provocation. I was having a meeting with Epstein one day in his office when John walked in unexpectedly. Beaming broadly, he came towards me and shook my hand, an unusual thing for him to do. Then he walked over to Epstein, and it looked as though he was going to repeat the formal handshake routine. Brian smiled and extended his hand in readiness, but at the last moment, John's hand plunged down to Epstein's groin, and he grabbed hold of his testicles and held on tightly. Epstein involuntarily gasped in pain, and my eyes watered in sympathy. Still grinning broadly and gripping relentlessly, John simply said, whoops. Lots of people say that... Brian specifically enjoyed getting beat up. He liked straight prostitutes who would then beat him up. Like, it was his kink. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, again, we're not here to kink shame him. Yeah. Good for him. Like, rock on if (laughs) if you're into that. It's not my business. Um, So there might be something to that, that that Brian just genuinely liked John treating him like shit. Like, he just kind of got off on it. And John was like, all right, whatever. (laughs) That's what you're into. I like being mean, so cool. (laughs) Um, you know, I don't know (laughs) if John was just like, no skin off my back, I'll play along, whatever. But, but deep down he was sweet. I don't know. It's hard to tell. And also a lot of these accounts are from straight guys too. So they, they, you know, they might not get a read on it. It it might be hard for them to understand. And you're never really sure if there's a little bit of judgment going on. It's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say. And, and that might not even be a gay straight, it might just be a kink shame. Right. You know, yeah, might, that's true. They might just disapprove of the specific kink. Um, yeah, but, like if they had a dynamic between them and that's something they understood that they both enjoyed, like these guys on the periphery wouldn't understand that necessarily either. But Miles, uh, Barry Miles said that Brian specifically liked it. He said the, the meaner John was to Brian, the more Brian liked it. So, hmm. and, and Hunter also mentioned that Brian liked getting beat up by prostitutes. I mean, th- yeah. that was a fairly known thing. I think everybody knew that He's about Brian. He's a masochist. Brian. <laughs> yes, exactly. He was a masochist. So, um, again, it's not our business to kink shame the guy if that's what he was into. Um, it's hard to judge because John was also just mean to people who did not like it. So, right. I don't yeah, know. Sometimes he just liked to be mean. And sometimes yeah, exactly. he was super sweet. Just kind yeah. of depended what what John you were going to get that day kind of probably depended on like the weather or if it's, he got enough sleep or had been eating properly or yeah, exactly. wasn't on too many drugs or and then the other thing is that unfortunately it sounds pretty typical of John Lennon because everybody describes him as being super sweet 
and very loving and tender and, you know, a big softy. But also we know he could be mean and vicious mm-hmm. to the same people. Literally all of his loved ones. Yeah. Describe I was just about way. to say that. Pretty much everyone he had a close, personal, loving relationship with, he vacillated between the two sides. He was like Jekyll and Hyde, probably. Right. So it's kind of a potent combo, and it's not really, might be a little above our pay grade to parse mm-hmm. it out exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that, like, getting a sense of who Brian was as a person is kind of difficult, too, because mm-hmm. there are conflicting portraits of him, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, to hear Marianne Faithful or Scylla Black talk about Brian is very different. You know, oh, yeah. like, he was consummate professional, almost fatherly, you know, sort of, like, chaste in their eyes. Yeah. Um, and then the, he obviously had a behind-closed-doors type of personality where he was very, very different. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's hard. And then the other thing is that over time he's in the Beatle fandom or whatever – he sort of morphed into like this LGBT poster child hero yeah. mascot of the of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of is, a canonized LGBT figure. That's what I notice, and I'm rather what, sensitive to that kind of thing because I happen to be a member of that community. I don't know. It feels weird to me too. So anyway, um, at the at the risk of dodging this issue and being cowardly, we're we're not going to issue a like a summary. Of yeah. John and Brian's entire dynamic, because we don't feel qualified to do that, okay? We'll just say that Brian is the manager, and he's taking one of the members of the band on a personal holiday, hopefully for sex. And that sex may have resulted in special treatment for that band member. I've already spoken about how wildly inappropriate I think this was. I think it's patently unfair to the other half of Lennon McCartney and unethical on its face. Given the climate of 1963, I'm not exactly surprised that historically no one has bothered to point this out, especially since for decades everyone was frantically trying to disprove that anything sexual happened simply for homophobic reasons. Mm. It was way more important to every author that they prove that John had an unblemished record of heterosexuality. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but in 2021, I think it is okay to acknowledge that this behavior was not cool and that it was an abuse of power on Brian's part. Mm-hmm. It's popular nowadays to acknowledge that John wasn't cool in leaving his new baby and wife alone. Yeah. I've seen that pop up several places recently. Even though John himself acknowledges that in 1971. So he was talking about how that was uncool of him. 50 mm-hmm. years ago. Right. 71, John saying yeah. it's not cool. Right. But for whatever reason, people are extremely reluctant and sometimes just outright refuse to question Epstein's judgment or professionalism. But I think it's wrong and I stand by that. And I think Paul had every right to be bothered by it. I mean, I think so too. But I think there's a tendency by misguided but still well-meaning allies and people inside the community as well to overcorrect. And I'm just speaking from my own perspective as a member of the LGBT community. In the case of Brian, the way Beatles fans talk about him, I get the impression that he must have been very kind, soft, always making the best judgment calls for the band because he just loved them so much. Always a gentleman, right? Like, yes, never had a wrong word to say about anybody. 
Well, and there's yeah. definitely the trope that Brian just lived for his boys. Yeah. It's like I he see that like everywhere all the time. <laughs> One of the weird things that I drives me insane is that Brian is often referred to as John's father figure. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, nobody acknowledges that there's a power differential between them. Yeah. And especially in the case if they had any kind of sexual encounter. And it's important that we acknowledge that. I prefer to look at him as a human being. He was just as capable of making mistakes as any other person. And I don't think to talk about the bad decisions that he made as a manager is tantamount to slander. It's not. It's just <laughs> yeah. talking about right. him as a historical figure, as a human being. We're just analyzing his place in the story, and that's all we're trying to do. I absolutely agree. And f- I mean, for God's sake, we are never suggesting that the Beatles, for example, who we love, you know. Yeah. Well, we're never suggesting that the Beatles didn't do selfish, shitty things in the pursuit of sex. Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> let's be realistic. We hold Brian to some weird, fucked up standard that we don't hold men to. Like, as if, like, oh, my God, Brian would never try to get into the pants of John. It's like, clearly he did. Yeah. Listen. He can be an overall good manager who yeah. overall had the best interest of the band at right. heart. Right. I do believe that. I, yeah, same here. I agree. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have a hard-on for John his whole life and that he didn't favor him. Of course he did. Like, stop. Yeah. This is a ridiculous conversation. Yeah, seriously. Now, the details of what happened between Brian and John are a bit foggy, too. Uh, Most inside accounts say that Brian gave John a BJ, and that was it, and everyone in the Beatles circle knew about it. John told Pete Schotten, at least according to Pete's 1983 memoir, that it was a handjob. John said he offered to let Brian penetrate him. Brian politely declined and gave him a handjob instead. Now, whether John was downgrading the blowjob to a handjob for Pete's sake or Pete's publisher advised Pete to downplay it, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Um, It's kind of splitting hairs. Yeah. The point is that the way John talked about it in 1980 supports this version that something happened, but it wasn't all the way. Yeah. And in 1968, he told Hunter Davies that he had a one-night stand with Brian again suggesting it was a one-off thing and this seems to also be the consensus from the inside as well that it was a one-time thing in barcelona and that it was it was more than nothing but it was less than a full-blown great big love affair um john's public accounts of the barcelona trip Predictably enough, varied a bit. In 1970, he said this. I was having a baby, and the holiday was planned, but I wasn't going to break the holiday for a baby. You know, that's how what a bastard I was. And I just went on holiday, you know, and I watched Brian with picking up the boys. You know. I like playing a bit faggy, you know, and all that. But <laughs> I was, it was enjoyable. And in 1980, he said this. Where the rumors went round that he and I were having a love affair. Well, it was almost a love affair, but not quite. It was never consummated, but it was pretty intense. 
relationship we had and it was my first experience with a homosexual that I was conscious was homosexual and that he'd admitted it to me. Much different in tone, those two. Of course, in 1970, John was fresh out of therapy with Janov, a quack doctor who practiced conversion therapy, which is like a secular version of pray the gay away. Very psychologically damaging, some would say barbaric practice akin to forcing left-handed people to write with their right hands. And then, of course, in the process, teaching them to hate themselves and others like them. Anyway, um, by 1980, he seemed to be in a much better place about his sexuality. But in 1963, John Lennon was very definitely terrified of being outed, frightened and conflicted about his own sexuality, and maybe not entirely sure how to process or interpret the experience. But those big rooms in Liverpool, it was terrible. Very embarrassing. Oh, God knows. <laughs> yes, yes. This is also complicated by the fact that in 1960s Britain, homosexuality was illegal and could quickly end a career. Um, I say that weird, like homosexuality was illegal, because it's so stupid. Like, what does that even mean? Right, like, how could that even be enforced? Exactly. Like, how is an abstract characteristic illegal? Like, it's stupid. It's not like blowjobs were illegal to give or receive or something. Like, that's something tangible, but, like, I don't know how... You can just make a concept illegal. It's fucking stupid. But anyway, we know that how that was put into practice, right? Gay people were just targeted and criminalized. Yep. Unfortunately, John never talked on record in any depth about his sexual identity, which is a real shame. Most importantly, because it would have done him a world of good, I think. But also because now that he's gone... We don't really know how to faithfully discuss his sexuality because he didn't leave explicit instructions and a clear label for it. Mm -hmm. This is still a highly contentious issue, especially amongst people who still consider being queer a slander or an insult and who consider heterosexuality the correct or default sexual identity. Yeah. A lot of people still sort of have the opinion that if we don't have clear, definitive, you know, documented proof that John was bisexual, pansexual, gay, asexual, whatever, that we have to assume that he's heterosexual. Like, it's, it is only fair and honorable to just assume that because right. that, again, is just sort of the default assumption. Right. Um, and we do know that he loved women and was sexually attracted to women. So right. we could assume he's not gay. We know that much. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, we don't really know because he didn't tell us. Yeah. He just left breadcrumbs, confusing breadcrumbs. And I think I think he was working it out. Yeah. A lot of the time, too. So I don't think it's like he fi- he had it all figured out at 12. And no. he just wanted to fuck with us like right no no i i think he probably was still trying to figure it out at 40 just as i agree just as much as when he was a teenager or a 20 something person like he wasn't coming up in a time where it was okay to really be comfortable with that you know and it's not unusual for 40 year old people in present day to be still figuring things out. right that's perfectly normal and acceptable as well yeah 
There's a lot of people um, who don't figure it out until middle age. Exactly. Especially people who are married and in heterosexual relationships. Right. So. Actually, you know, I kind of suspect that John briefly had it all figured out in 1967. <laughs> I do get that impression. Yeah. From time to time that he knew he knew everything he was about in 67. Right. Like he had a sense of peace about himself. Um, didn't Pete Shotton said that he was happier because he didn't have to fight everybody anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like he you know, that's when he starts wearing his glasses full time and yeah. he just seems more just seems more um himself like more in touch with himself and, mm-hmm. and more in touch with his emotions happier. yeah and he writes all you need is love and yeah he just really seems to know what john lennon's all about you know mm-hmm. and maybe again in 1972 73 i think he's figured shit out then too yeah and it's i think it's important to note that in 1972 john contributed a drawing and a poem to the gay liberation book which is right. really interesting and really cool. Well, yeah, and then he's and then when he and Yoko split up, he asks if he should have a boyfriend or a girlfriend with him. I mean, that yeah. he's figured out that that's something he might want. So yeah, I think he has. I think he has moments of clarity throughout his life. You know, maybe he goes back and forth, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he maybe once he's back and settled. It just doesn't feel like part of his life anymore or just like something he's not ever going to have or I don't know. Right. And maybe even again in 1980, I don't know. But um, he seems like he has moments of clarity throughout his life. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's maybe a sort of a bigger topic. but um, Yeah. But can I just say the, the other thing, the point of this episode is not to prove that, you know, John Lennon is LGBT or whatever. But um, regarding the situation in Barcelona as described to Pete Shotton. Assuming that Pete didn't just make that story up out of thin air, which I'm assuming he did not, this idea that John was such an over-the-top people pleaser (laughs) that he was just like, well, Brian, and not at all interested in sex with men, but uh, you know what? I'll do it to make you happy. (laughs) Yeah. Do we have any straight men in our audience who let other guys fuck them just to be nice? All right, then. So let's just kill that <laughs> argument, please. I hope everybody sees yeah. how insane that sounds. Yeah, it's just madness that people are like, he just let Brian do sex stuff to him to be nice, but he's totally straight. He did it because he feels sorry for him or whatever. It's one thing that's just like, oh, I felt sorry for him, so I let him kiss me or something right fine i could maybe buy that like you're so pathologically nice want to please so much that you let somebody kiss you who you're not into or something Mm -hmm. but like really you let somebody fuck you in the ass just out of niceness yeah that doesn't work like that like straight guys don't do that no they don't let other guys fuck them just out of kindness or like to ease the tension in the room seriously I don't understand Beetledom. Like, I don't, like, I literally don't even understand what the logic is there. It's just a really weird cognitive dissonance that people have. But how do you explain that? How, I what is don't the expo- know. It <laughs> makes no sense. What is the explanation for that? Pete seems to sincerely care about John as a friend. I don't see why he would put that in Make his that story. Up. Yeah, like, just to put it in his story to be scandalous or whatever. Just because Brian said, oh, no, thanks. How about this instead? How about a hand job instead? It doesn't mean that John didn't say that. 
again, I circle back to I don't know any straight men who would be like, yeah, just fuck me in the ass, dude. It's all good. If you're not interested in trying it, you're not going to offer it. Yeah, and it doesn't, I I agree, it doesn't make him gay, but it does make make him him want a dick. That's all that we can take away from that, but that is a big takeaway. To state the obvious, it's it's difficult and questionable to apply modern terms to a historical figure who would not have used those terms. Even though, to be clear, human sexuality has not changed since the 1960s, <laughs> right? Or right. since the beginning of time. Right. Like, all that's changed is how we label it, discuss it, and, and understand it. Exactly. Human sexuality is as fluid and complicated and, you know, interesting and fun and whatever, as it always yeah. has been. <laughs> anyway, um, this is very important to bear in mind when we're discussing Barcelona, meaning there were different norms at the time. Yeah. So we have to be mindful of those, even when we're applying modern standards. Yeah. All right. Now <laughs> we're going <laughs> to complicate this incident a bit further. Okay, we know that John willingly went to Barcelona with Brian, and we know that John was well aware that Brian wanted him sexually and was probably going to make a move at some point. But something recently came to our attention. Steve Gaines, who helped Peter Brown write his book, has recently been sharing bits of unpublished interviews on Facebook. And he posted the following regarding Barcelona, which I'll just go ahead and read. He said... I more than asked Peter Brown about it. We talked about it for hours. I talked about it with everyone except Yoko. And then he mentions hanging out with Cynthia for a week. And then he goes on to say, Peter Brown was Brian Epstein's closest friend. Peter and Brian had no secrets from each other. So what is the it that everyone wanders about? John accompanied Brian to vacation in Spain. Not for sex, but to manipulate him. Brian was already dazzled by John, who was originally his only interest in the Beatles. When Brian came back from Spain, he said that John became inebriated and sort of passed out, and Brian took advantage and performed oral sex. That certainly did not mean John was gay. The whole Beatles inner circle believed it. It's not that remarkable. Okay, now this is one account, and since it's from Steve Gaines via Peter Brown, via Brian Epstein, it's it's hearsay. Also, I'm not shy in my opinion that I think Peter Brown is a scumbag, even though Lewison is using him as a source. <clears throat> but uh, let's assume for a moment that this is true. If it is true, and John was asleep or passed out, this is sexual assault. Yeah. Now, to be clear... I absolutely believe that John Lennon would not think of it as assault and that Brian would not think of it as assault. Date rape was not a legal concept in 1963. Okay? Yeah. But in 2021, we have to be very clear that this is not okay. You cannot take advantage when someone passes out. Mm-hmm. Now, in my opinion, the fact that Brian framed it this way to Peter suggests that 
Brian didn't feel guilty about it or think it was wrong. Right. Which either makes him a sociopathic sexual predator or suggests that he genuinely did not think that he was hurting John. Yeah. Which I have to assume it's the latter. Yeah, same here. And I assume John would have rationalized it to himself also, like, well, I went along with it, I let him do it, I didn't resist, etc. Right. Because, as far as I know, John never suggested to anyone that Brian forced him into anything. Now, we should also say two things. One is that even if John did feel violated, he likely would never admit that or allow himself to think that because men traditionally, especially heterosexual men, weren't allowed to think of themselves as victims and unless they were physically overpowered. Yeah. And for that matter, women were usually not considered rape victims unless they were beaten and overpowered. Again, our concept of sexual consent has evolved massively over the past 50 years. I just want to be really clear about that. Yeah. However, the other point I want to make is that even if John didn't view it as a violation, he might have still had mixed feelings about it. Oh, yeah. You can initially give consent and then still have conflicted feelings over a sexual experience later, too. Like Sometimes you can't process everything right away, especially if there's drugs or alcohol involved. Absolutely. Or in John's case, if you're ditching your wife and newborn child and you're kind of screwing over your best friend... Like, oddly, nobody thinks John has any conscience about that whatsoever. Right. And we know that he felt bad about... About leaving the baby and Cynthia. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. He said, that's how much of a bastard I was right. in 1971. So he knows that was a shitty thing to do. Right. Total self-centered move. And then also, if you're a bisexual dude who's just figuring that out or has recently figured that out or whatever, right. and you have a lot invested in a heterosexual image, both your public image and your self-image, not to mention knowing that your sexuality could threaten not just your career, but many people's careers, mm -hmm. and your family, and probably most of your personal relationships too. It would be totally normal. If John's feelings about Barcelona changed over time, depending on a variety of factors. Absolutely. But in any case, John being passed out and Brian taking advantage is a far cry from how this incident is typically portrayed. And I'm not saying that Brian should be canceled on the basis of hearsay. We're not arguing for that. But again, if this is indeed true, it could shed light on many elements to this story, including John's violent reaction and why his attitude about it seemed to fluctuate. Yeah. And it could also help explain why Paul McCartney is so cagey and defensive about this sexual incident on John's behalf and why Paul isn't particularly warm toward Brian. Right. Just for like five seconds, assuming that, that Paul loves John, right? Right. Assume, let's assume that he loves his best friend, okay? Yeah. Which I think we all do. Whatever you just felt imagining John in the situation where he's being taken advantage of, like whatever anger that that made you feel, imagine you're his best fucking friend. Mm -hmm. 
wouldn't Paul be upset about it too? Right. And that's their manager. They are dependent on this guy, you know, for managing the business side of their career at this point. They can't do it on their own. So again, it's like, this is an almost impossible situation to be in for John and Paul. Yeah. I mean, they're already under a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. and they're very young. Yeah. And also he's being forced to hide his wife from the public. He has to obscure like this whole side of his whole life for the image. So then if he's also dealing with his sexual identity and has something tied up in that with this manager as well, like that's just a crazy boiling stew of emotions. Yeah. It's a mess. Yeah. It's a real mess. And the thing that really bothers me, I'm just going to go off for a second. Sure, go for it. Well, Brian's only 28 years old, right? Right. I mean, I don't expect him to be 100% in control, always making the best decisions and and whatever. I'm not saying that he's a piece of trash because he made this emotional, horny decision to (laughs) take John on the the trip or whatever. But it is fucking real selfish. It is really, really selfish because it kind of set in motion this whole mess. Because, mm-hmm. again, it's not just a mess for Brian or a mess for John. It's a mess for a whole lot of people at this party. It know? is. And and all we hear about is, like, what an amazing manager Brian was who always had the Beatles' best interests at heart. And why was Paul such a pill right. and so hard to manage? Yeah. But, like, <laughs> meanwhile, like, how great of a manager are you that you can't keep your dick in your pants long enough to get this band off the ground safely? Yeah. It caused problems between John and Paul. Mm-hmm. It caused rumors for John yeah. around Liverpool. Which he has to deal with, and he's got a new baby, plus their career is trying to get off the ground, so... Right, and, you know, yes, John's not a 15-year-old boy. He's right. a grown man. Yeah. He chose to go. He could have said no. Right. You know, I'm not saying that he's, he's just no... like a puppet. Right, he has some culpability in this, too. Like, he decided to leave his wife behind and go on a vacation with his manager. And, he did, yeah. but the thing that makes me angry is that... He is treated as the only culpable party here. Yeah. And that's fucked up. Right. There were two adults in that situation, Brian and John. Right. And who is allegedly in charge? Brian. And he's also five years older than John, I think, at the time. Was this really in John's best interest? Oh, no. No. This was a purely selfish thing. (laughs) You know, I want to create a situation in which me and this person that I'm interested in and have feelings for are alone. So that we can have our fun. But what about the other person, though? What about John's life? What about the fallout that he's going to probably experience? Because Brian apparently didn't keep his mouth shut about this. He told his friends. And Which, people, again, people is talk. normal. He's, exactly. Like, he's excited. I get right, that part. Yeah. I don't expect I the- him to be, you know, uh, superhuman. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's like, be careful who you tell, though, because people do like to talk everybody's talked like yeah exactly well i guess people don't officially go on record but like everybody in the beatles circles knows about it you know yeah. actually the one person who won't fucking spill about it is paul mm-hmm. like everybody's joking like oh haha paul is in such denial he's so jealous like what? seriously yeah. Maybe he's not in denial and maybe he's not jealous. Maybe he's protective of his best friend who wasn't put in a great situation. Right. And he's always been protective of John. So that pretty much tracks. And yes, of course, Paul is also angry at John for double crossing him, like from 
Paul's perspective, that's what John is doing. He's trying to maneuver a better deal for himself within the band. We're not discounting that and saying, John's a victim. And the only reason that Paul was upset with Brian is because he was protective of his Johnny. Like, that's not <laughs> our theory. It's not what we're saying. We're just saying that um, this might have also been a contributing factor in this very complicated situation. Like, Paul might have been upset for both selfish and empathetic reasons. Mm-hmm. A thousand Beatle books have been written. <laughs> you know, like this <laughs> fucking story has been told 80 gazillion times. Indie fan fiction movies have been made about it. Yeah. Like it's been romanticized and turned into comic books and fan art and mm-hmm. movies and whatever. Everybody loves to talk about it, but like literally nobody is talking about it in this context of like the actual actual repercussions that it had on the band on the partnerships in the band and on like brian's relationship with the rest of the beatles right people love to talk about this incident yeah but they never talk about it critically they only talk about it like what was it paul what do you think it was paul was it did they have sex or not you know right um you can see why that would piss Paul off after a while and why he'd just be like evasive and cagey about it. Like, I don't know. What did you tell me? What happened? I don't know. Right. But it's just so annoying to me that Brian Epstein has somehow gotten a free pass on all of it. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to being a canonized member of the LGBT community. Um, I just think it's really unethical to look the other way at another community member's problematic behavior and not say something about it. He is kind of, it's like he's weirdly infantilized and a lot of stuff about him is romanticized, but people don't really know a lot about him, myself included, because he's kind of a mysterious person. But my main point is really a lot of people who exhibit problematic behavior at different points in their life exist in every community. And I think the onus is on people in that community to shine a light on those issues. And again, not to just arbitrarily finger wag and cancel and virtue signal. I'm not trying to do that. But to me, it's really no different from the concept of white people calling out and educating other white people for being racist or men educating and calling out other men for being misogynistic. You know, so when we're discussing the sexual contact between Brian and John during the Barcelona trip, Whenever people don't dismiss it and actually acknowledge that it probably happened, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I almost exclusively see it being framed as something purely just, it was casual, fun, and experimental. It was real light. And, you know, I acknowledge that, you know, that's what they meant to do initially. But then once he got there, he wasn't maybe so into it anymore because we have evidence from Pete Shotton's account that John was at least troubled by what happened in his account to pete yeah this is what it said in pete's book okay this is pete quoting john he Mm -hmm. said epi just kept on and on at me until one night i finally pulled my trousers down and said to him oh fuck it brian just stick it up my arse then and he said to me actually john i don't do that kind of thing that's not what i like to do i said to him well then what do you like to do what kind of thing do you do he said, I'd like to just touch you, so I let him toss me off. Yeah, so fucking what? The poor bastard. He's having a fucking hard time anyway. So what harm did it do then, Pete, for fuck's sake? No harm at all. The poor fucking bastard. He can't help the way he is. Oof, John. 
Um, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot in that. But, like, really what I get from it is that he's kind of just giving in to after being pushed and pushed. Yeah. Like, okay, probably when they were planning this trip and they had conversations about it, he was all in. Or maybe enthusiastic or showed some enthusiasm or whatever. Right, right, So they right. get there and he's like, oh, I'm not feeling the chemistry. But that's awkward, so maybe he's being avoidant or whatever. Again, I don't know. Not there. Yeah. This is just what could have happened, maybe. Yeah, but based Brian's off of like, this quote. Right, based on this quote. And then Brian's like, oh, come on, come on. And that happens with sexual contact a lot between a lot of people of different sexualities. Yeah. Like, this happens in a lot of hetero right. relationships, too. Of course, yeah. So it has nothing to do with Brian's sexual identity or John's, for that matter. It's just you've got two adults who entered into a situation and one is deciding they don't want to do it anymore but the other one's like you know pushing and pushing like Uh, yeah exactly and and when he says he kept on and on at me until one night i pulled my trousers down and said go ahead and stick it in i mean that to me sounds like i did want to do it with you but you're being a fucking dick about it right. you know like Pushing. where it's like well i kind of wanted it to be nice and right. you didn't have yeah. to buy me flowers but i kind of didn't want to do it in the back seat of your dad's buick or whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> just like you're nagged enough that's what it sounds like to me it yeah. sounds like a first time like fine just stick it in then god yeah like enough already but if you're saying go ahead and put it in obviously you were kind of planning on that like I think he was this is just what it sounds like to me this is just what I'm getting from that quote it sounds like John went there to do it right but somehow he got annoyed with Brian yeah yeah like Brian was pestering him or something John's also moody so maybe he just got prickly about something who the fuck knows maybe he just wasn't in the mood yet and like maybe he would have been eventually so we're not saying like Brian's a big old creep always forever it's just that this moment was questionable yeah the fact that John says so what harm did it do yeah no harm at all like that's a red flag to me me too and then how he says the poor fucking bastard, he can't help the way he is, also sounds defensive. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, again, John is not 15 years old. Right. He's 23 years old, and he knows what he wants, and he obviously went there, you know. Yeah, knowing that something was go probably going to happen. Exactly. He didn't go to Barcelona and go, oh, Brian, you're gay. You didn't tell me. You know, <laughs> like, wasn't That's not the situation we're yeah. trying to claim is going on. Yeah. But I think it didn't quite go down the way he had pictured it. Yeah. Well, and there's never any acknowledgement by anyone ever, ever that I've ever heard. The fact that it may have been an intimidating experience for John, even if he was initially enthusiastic about it. Right. So, Mm. you know, like if it's his first time trying something new like that, and there's so much other social baggage tied up, you know, during the time period they're living in all that stuff. Like, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot for someone to process. It is a lot. lot. And then also, like, commonplace kind of stuff, like, sometimes it's weird. Like, if you have a coworker or something. Right. It is kind of a coworker situation in a way. It's it's kind of like that. It's like Brian's not his boss, but he's, like, the department head or something. You know, like, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, The manager's not the boss of the band, but he kind of has to 
coordinate yes. and handle and he has to do a lot of stuff for them and he has to make deals for them like financial management stuff so he still holds a lot of power in that relationship he does and i and i often hear people defend this whole situation maybe unconsciously because right. they're not really talking about Barcelona, but I do hear a lot of people argue like, well, you know, Brian worked for them and they were in control and, or, or better yet, John was in control. John, because apparently John is the manager of the Beatles in his spare time. He's, right. because he's, it's <laughs> his singular his vision. The Beatles. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not trying to insult John, but that man was no, no natural manager. I'm he has many gifts. He many has gifts. many gifts, but like like managing coordinating no. things and organizing no. stuff, not no. that man's strong suit. For God's sake. <laughs> George Martin was not the boss either, but he was an older man mm-hmm. who's kind of in a position of authority. Right. Even though, of course, yes, the Beatles as the creatives are calling the shots. Although George Martin's a creative also, but yep. Um, he's similar to like the manager of the studio or whatever, but again, not one fucking person would ever think it would be okay if George Martin took Paul McCartney to Spain for two weeks and fucked him and then came back and was like, actually, we're going to credit all the songs to McCartney. Right. That's ridiculous to even suggest it. Hell no. Like everybody in the world would be like, that's bogus. Of course it would be. And Paul, and by the way, Paul would be called the biggest snake in the grass if Mm -hmm. he went on a vacation with George Martin. And by the way, John would have the biggest meltdown of all time. Yes, he would. So that, that, like, just just making the analogy is important because it shows how ridiculous the situation is. And the fact that people defend it is insanity. It is insanity. Seriously. Yeah, like, this is not a double standard because Brian's gay. Like, in fact, I'd say it's more of a double standard not to hold him to the same standard as a straight guy in terms of being ethical. Again, I am not suggesting that Brian is the only one who had problems with boundaries. For God's sake, George slept with Ringo's wife, as we all know. You know, like, George and Paul dated the same girl, Iris Caldwell. Neil... Had a baby with Pete's mom. Right. Know? Yeah. Like, Talk about not th- having boundaries. <laughs> this is yeah, exactly. Like we're we are definitely not singling Brian out as the only person yeah. in this circle who did weird. Yeah, weird, creepy sex stuff. <laughs> like it's all of them and yeah. all of us. But again, Brian doesn't get a pass. Like, come on. Okay. So knowing all of that, let's get back to Paul's birthday party. Mm. Okay, so we know that John attacked both Bob Wooler and a woman named Rose. By all accounts, John was wasted drunk. Mm. And by all accounts, Bob Wooler said something to John about Barcelona, although no one remembers or knows what it was. Um, And again, it doesn't really matter. I've read that after the attack... John defended himself by yelling, he called me queer, um, which Willard denies. And I'm sure did not happen. Right. Like, I'm I'm sure that this middle-aged gay man did not walk up to a drunk John Lennon and say, hey, you big queer. Right. How was your fucking gay holiday? Like, I'm 100% sure he did not do that. Right. John says in 71, he said that Willard said something like, come on, John, tell us. And he, had, he was saying, well, come on, John, tell me something like that. He was saying, tell me about you and Brian. We all know. We already know. 
you know, which seems much more likely. Yeah. Right. This is a passage from Howard Soon's book. He says, whatever the reason, Lenin certainly attacked Wooler. Not content with this, Lenin also lunged at a girl named Rose, grabbing her breasts. Rose slapped him. So wonderful, save the earth, John Lennon turns around and chins her. Bang! Down she goes. And she was on the floor, and he was going to kick her, recalls Merseyside musician Billy Hatton, who intervened to stop John going further. Okay, so not only did John beat Bob Wooler, a business associate of the Beatles, so badly he thought he might kill him, but he also sexually assaulted and punched a young woman at the party. This woman has a name, and Billy Haddon went on record about this assault, and I cannot express how much it bothers me that whenever people discuss this incident, 99% of the time, this woman is just erased from the story. I've only heard it mentioned a couple of times. Like, oh, yeah, who cares that he punched this woman? And that he was going like, to go in to start her kicking out her. Yeah, she was down on the, on the floor. ground, and he was going to start kicking her? She was in the way of whatever rage he was going through. Like, well, Why is he grabbing her breasts? It's not like he's beating up Wooler, he gets pulled off of him, and then all of a sudden he's horny. Right, no, he's and trying he's to like, prove Ooh. his masculinity or whatever. Of course, fuck. he's not making a pass Toxic at her. He, shit, just, yeah. he just grabbed her tits to be... Like, oh, you're gonna call me gay? Well, I wouldn't... Exactly, who's a I... faggot now? Yeah. He grabs her tits <sighs> and like... Yeah, he's out of control. Yeah. He's absolutely just out of control. No, he should have been taken you know. home like hours ago. Anyways, this brings us to another difficult but necessary conversation about another issue, which is the modern reputation of John Lennon as a so-called wife beater. Now, I personally haven't experienced this, but I have seen discussions online about the fact that younger fans usually are being harassed online by other young people usually in spaces like tiktok or instagram for liking john lennon by people who are not fans of john lennon but who are aware of his violent history now to the extent that john has been singled out from the beatles for his abusive behavior i agree that isn't fair right because we know that ringo under the influence of alcohol, beat his wife Barbara so badly that he thought he'd killed her. Yeah. That's been public knowledge for decades. Yeah, we covered that in our Ringo episode, too. Like that We was, did. That was the impetus for them going to rehab, because he didn't remember doing it, and he was scared that he'd killed her. Yeah. And we know from Paul's divorce with Heather Mills that Paul got blackout drunk and shoved Heather four different times And in one of those episodes, he broke a wine glass that she was holding that ended up cutting her arm. Mm. That's also been in the public for 15 years. And the details are all in Philip Norman's book. Like, they're part of the court record. They're not a secret. But the point of dragging the other Beatles into this isn't to say, well, John's not so bad, really. Right. It's it's that none of this behavior is okay. Yeah. It is reasonable and necessary to say that violence against women is bad. Yes. It's not okay if John does it. It's not okay if Paul does it. And it's not okay if Ringo does it. 
Doesn't matter who you like best. Doesn't matter if you think these are great guys or yeah. shitty guys. Yeah. You can't just pick and choose like, well, I like that one. So it's okay when he does it. And yeah. It's okay. But it's not okay when he does it because I don't like him. Or worse off that. when it's like, well, that was just part of his journey and he became a better person. Like, No, <laughs> yeah. it's still inexcusable no matter who did it. It's wrong. Yeah. If you want to excuse it, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. But it's wrong. It's not okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yet, I still see people who want to defend John, ignore his violent history, and bend over backwards to excuse his behavior towards Cynthia. When John and Cynthia, or sort of early on in their relationship when they started dating, um, John slapped her into jealous rage at a dance, and she... I guess he slapped her pretty hard and she hit her head on the back of the wall or something. And, it was like a pipe um, that was sticking out of the wall, I think. And she caught yeah. her head on it pretty hard. Like it hurt. It hurt her. And she was like, fuck this. I'm out. Yeah. And then, you know, he apologized. She went back to him. Long story short. But more than once I've seen that particular incident being explained away as John's grief over Julia's death. <sighs> and that is such bullshit seriously Ugh. people don't do that yeah that's that's so stupid like yeah it- if cynthia had said hey john your mother was a whore and john slapped her then yes that's then i'd say julia's death was an instigating factor in that scenario but right. that's that's not what happened no john john didn't slap cynthia because his mom died right he slapped her because she danced with Stuart and John was an insecure and jealous boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You can still be sympathetic to him as a human being who yeah. lost his mom, but like fucking enough. Okay. Yeah. You could also say that Paul McCartney was still grieving the recent death of his wife when he was shoving Mills around. I'm sure that's true, but it's still not an excuse to put your hands on somebody. Yeah. One has nothing to do with the other. Right. Okay? Yeah. One can give the context of the emotional headspace the person may have been in at the time, but it's not an excuse for that behavior. It doesn't make the behavior okay. Like, let's just be unequivocal about that. You know, in the same vein, you could say Ringo had enormous problems with drugs and alcohol, but, you know, so does half the adult population. And not everybody (laughs) under the influence gets violent either. Exactly. Exactly. And Paul obviously had a drinking problem as well and and john may have been drinking too much too like he had problems with drugs and alcohol they They all did did. yeah all four of them at different points had addiction issues right with various substances and as you point out so do a lot of people like especially after the pandemic like our whole fucking country is going through an alcohol problem right now right our whole country was founded on an alcohol problem if you go back (laughs) (laughs) alcohol has always been an issue So what I've seen a lot of, which I find disturbing, is when fans push back on the label of wife beater with the explanation of, well, he only slapped Cynthia once and that was it. And I'm telling you, I have seen this defense everywhere. Oh, yeah. There are articles and posts and YouTube videos about it. And it really bothers me because... Yeah, that might be true of John's violence against Cynthia. Although, 
when she was talking to Hunter Davies in 1967, both she and John were like, oh, yeah, he used to be abusive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but he's better now. So they both kind of implied that it was more than just once, but whatever. Fine. For the sake of argument, let's say it was only the one time. With Cynthia. With Emphas- Cynthia. With emphasis on that. That still completely ignores and erases the attack on Rose at Paul's party. Mm-hmm. And it completely ignores May Pang, who John nearly choked to death until Harry Nilsson pulled him off of her. Yeah. We won't get into the details of all of May's allegations here because it's not what this episode is about. And we're not in court and we're not here to list all of John's violent episodes. But just we just want to make the point that they are serious. Um, so I will just share this one excerpt from her book, Loving John. So John and Harry and May Pang are all in the jacuzzi. John and Harry are very drunk and they're passing a bottle back and forth, drinking from it. And May gets into the jacuzzi and she slips between them. Um, And I guess John took that as May cutting him off because she had tried to cut him off earlier. Mm. And he got very upset about that. And um, she says, slowly he reached out, put his hands to my throat and began to strangle me. As his hands closed tighter, I screamed out and tried to pull away, but he was incredibly strong. It couldn't have been more than a few seconds, but it seems an eternity with John's hands around my neck. Finally, Harry snapped to life and pulled John off of me. I must say I believe Harry Nilsson saved my life that night. And then May recounts running into the hotel room. Uh, John and Harry followed her in. Um, John threw, uh, threw her against the wall. And um, she ran into the bathroom and locked the door and hid from him for like a half an hour. Um, and then, of course, in the morning, he you know, was apologetic and crying and all that sort of stuff, which is typical. She also describes a violent incident on a plane also. I mean, neither of these women were married to John, but they both matter. And it's not helpful to pretend that they just don't exist. And that violence against women isn't something that John struggled with. Yeah. It's not helpful to your argument, but it's also just not helpful to anyone. Because, ironically, this is a topic that John Lennon was pretty forthcoming about. He was really transparent about it. Yes. He spoke openly about his problems with violence, and he owned it, and he didn't make excuses for it. And to me, this is honestly one of his most endearing qualities. Absolutely. It is. And it drives me crazy when people try to rob him of that by whitewashing his behavior mm-hmm. because to John's immense credit he did not ask to be absolved yeah he just said I know it's wrong and it's my problem mm-hmm. it's a problem of mine yeah he did take ownership over it to his credit and he was never like well I was I was sad about my mom at the time and that's what you know he says no I was insecure mm-hmm you know, I had to try to prove I was a man. Insecurity and toxic masculinity and all of that bullshit is what made me act like a fucking asshole. Yeah. He said straight out, I'm a hitter, or I used to be a hitter. And he even referenced getting better in the line about, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. He said that was his line that he wrote for the song. He didn't mm-hmm. pretend and he didn't yeah. make excuses. And to many people who love him and his music, that's good enough. Oh, and he yeah. took responsibility and he said he was sorry. Mm-hmm. But 
we also have to respect that it may not be good enough for everybody. Right. And that's fine too. You can't make that decision for people. Right. You can't require anybody to respect or forgive John or Paul or Ringo. Exactly. No one's required to like or respect any of these guys. Yeah. And plenty of abusers are repentant. So John's regret might mean jack shit to certain people. Right. You're not going to make John Lennon innocent on this issue. You're just not. Like, stop trying to turn him into somebody else's hero. Mm -hmm. He admitted he was guilty. And fandom is optional. So if you choose to like the Beatles, despite all their personal shortcomings and flaws as human beings, that's your choice. Yeah. I mean, we love him. We love Ringo and Paul also. Obviously, we love all these guys. But... Doesn't mean they didn't do these things. We also have a story about George Harrison slapping a woman named Patricia Inder. This is from Philip Norman's John book, and it also appears in Behind the Locked Door by Graham Thompson. Patricia was a Beatles superfan from the Cavern days, and she was cute and all the Beatles liked her. But she started sleeping with John, and apparently George got very jealous. She said, When George found out about John and me, he took it really badly. In fact, he slapped my face. Nice, George. Yeah. <laughs> and she um, she goes into a lot of detail in the Norman book about the nature of her and John's relationship. She and he were seeing each other at the same time that he and Cynthia were in a relationship, so he was cheating on Cynthia with her. Um, but they saw each other pretty regularly, so she was kind of like yeah. his steady side person. Side piece. Yeah. Yeah. John would tell Cynthia he was songwriting with Paul. Mm-hmm. And they had a crash pad at her friend Sue's house. Yep. And I love how Paul's just like, oh, we're songwriting? Okay, cool. Yeah, we're, we're songwriting. And then he just like came over <laughs> yes. to Sue's house to bang her and her friends. So John and Paul were both being total hoes. Mm-hmm. And being each other's wingman. And um, I guess George didn't like missing out on this fun and so um he decided that violence was the answer in this particular case so even george who until i discovered this little nugget of information um i thought he was the only one who was free and clear from violence against women but apparently not we're we're not saying it's time to cancel george harrison we're just saying again if you're going to apply a certain standard to people's behavior you gotta you gotta um apply it across the board and also brian slapping Derek taylor so i don't think that was Derek. i think that was neil aspinall that he slapped oh yes you're right i'm sorry my bad it was not Derek. (laughs) it was neil a lot of people are getting slapped apparently and nobody is out there saying well george harrison slapped this woman because of his you know childhood issue with xyz no he just slapped her because he was jealous we don't need to make excuses for this stuff. We just, you know, acknowledge it's bad and, and move on and incorporate that into somebody, you know, our view of people. Like, they're complicated. Yeah. Which brings us to our last point about this horrible incident, which is the aftermath. Uh, this is again from Howard Soons's book. And this is a quote from... Brian Epstein's lawyer, Rex Macon, who was hired to resolve the dispute. He says, Bob Wooler fancied John and made a pass at him at Paul McCartney's 21st birthday party. And John reacted by socking him in the nose. 
So um, essentially, Wooler went to Macon, this attorney, threatening to sue John, and Macon struck a compromise where Wooler received 200 pounds in damages and a written apology from John. So you heard that correctly. <sighs> Uh, John beat up this friend of theirs, and Brian Epstein turned around and accused Wooler, in official documents apparently, of making a pass at John, which was presumably illegal, by the way, since, you know, homosexuality was legal. So they basically outed him and then blamed him for his own beating. And also, that's not actually how it went down. Like, that's a lie. He didn't hit on John. Like, well, first of all, it's a lie. <laughs> Secondly, it's a damn dirty thing to do. It is a damn dirty thing to do. And I feel like this is a good time to remind our listeners that gay panic has been used as a viable criminal defense for violence, including murder, against LGBT persons since forever. Yeah, And it's probably still used today in much of the world. Mm-hmm. It's totally dehumanizing and places the comfort of straight people over the actual lives of queer people. And it's disgusting. And it happened here. So if anyone thinks that Brian wouldn't throw a fellow gay man all the way under the bus to protect John's heterosexual reputation, think again. Right. I mean, you could argue that that was... Brian's job. I mean, it literally is his job. Yeah, to protect it, the reputation of his clients. It it literally is his job. So, you know, again, if you don't want to judge Brian for that, that's your choice. But this is the reality of what happened. Well, and it had real consequences for somebody. I can't stress that enough myself, where there's this whole thing about um, people who are involved in celebrity lives who are not celebrities themselves are often mm. exploited by either the celebrity themselves or the management. It happens a lot. And then they're not protected. They're either just completely cast aside and forgotten about, or they're thrown under the bus entirely. There's a lot of negative consequence for somebody's career, potentially, for someone's livelihood, for someone's actual life. It's terrible. And again, you know, Brian's not in a great position here. Yeah. Because he has to protect John to his job. Did he have to use the gay panic defense or did the lawyer have to use the gay panic defense? Could you have just said something else? Like, well, they I had mean, words it, and they like John lost his shit and just leave it vague. So, yeah. Just say like John apologizes. He was too drunk. You know, he took offense to a joke that Wooler made and leave it at that. Yeah. What, what can we say? Like it does reflect the times. Mm. But it's also, like, it's a bummer. It is. It's sad. There's no winners here. No. There's no winners here. Also, I feel like, for context, we need to explain that this excuse that John was justified in beating Wooler up because he was defending his heterosexuality has been a serious talking point for decades. Like, a legit, straight-faced talking point. People have been using this as proof that John was straight. Like in books, or like a legitimate argument that John was just so masculine and so virile and so heterosexual that violence was a natural response to anything queer that got anywhere in his kill zone. Yeah. Which is obviously disgusting and ridiculous and laughable, but I can 100% guarantee you that many, many people have made this argument. Oh, yeah. 
<clears throat> yeah, I've seen the argument. But, like, I see the opposite in his reaction. Yes, he literally said it. Yeah. He was frightened of his own lack of heterosexuality at the time because he hadn't processed it properly. He had, again, so much wrapped up in a heterosexual identity that he had to maintain. It wasn't gay panic because a gay guy got in his kill zone. It was gay panic for himself. I see it as just pure fear on John's part. Yeah. Well, like we said, there's a number of factors here. It's not, it doesn't even have to be fear of his Being self or fear of his own sexuality, <clears throat> which it, I think it is partially that, mm -hmm. but yes, of course it's, it's also just the fear of being found out. Yeah. That's a real threat. It's a right. real problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, while John left a few breadcrumbs around, like, you know, I'd have to marry a rich lady or a man <laughs> in the French interview in 1975 or writing a poem in the gay liberation book or any number of things that he left behind, it, he never quite came out. And that's his choice. And I think that's another thing, too. It's like, maybe he never wanted to come out. Or maybe he would have eventually. But either way... I think that you're right, that the fear of being outed against his own will was a big fear, too. Yeah. And, I mean, again, the amazing part is that he was he was self-aware enough and bold enough to say that out loud in 1971. Yeah. Well, come on, John. Tell me something like that. He was saying, tell me about you and Brian. We all know like that. And obviously, I must have been on... Uh, frightened of the fag in me to get so angry at that you know when you're 21 you want to be a man all that i mean he he's very clear about what happened it wasn't anger at wooler it was it was his own homophobia you know yeah, yeah his own internalized homophobia yeah the beatles first national coverage was me beating up bob wooler at paul's 21st party because he intimated i was homosexual so i must have had a fear that maybe i was a homosexual to attack him like that and it's very complicated reasoning but i was very drunk and i hit him and i could have really killed somebody then and that scared me and i was paul was 21 so i must have been 23 then close your eyes and i'll kiss you Finally, we'd like to bring Paul McCartney into this conversation for a moment because he's all but completely ignored in this story. Yeah, isn't that weird? Like, it's his fucking 21st birthday party in England, at least at the time. I don't know about now, but that was the age of majority. That's when you became a real adult. So it's not like here where, yay, you can drink. There it was like, now you are a grown up. So it's that and all this other stuff wrapped into it. It's a big day for Paul. I just wanted to make that abundantly clear. Now, of course, the headliner is John's attack of Wooler and Rose. Although, again, Rose is never acknowledged. Yeah. And the background of the attack is the trip to Barcelona. And those two topics, Barcelona and the attack on Wooler, suck up a lot of air. Oh my god, yeah. And seemingly no author has any time for Paul because they, yeah, they don't give a fuck. Yeah, don't give a shit. <laughs> like yeah. what? Paul who? This isn't about Paul. It's about okay. John's psychodrama. That's the whole. Like, of the course, everything's Beatles about John. Nothing's about Paul. That. Remember, John's <laughs> fucking soulmate who doesn't factor into anything he does ever. Okay. 
Well, all I know is that if my whole family came together to throw me a party on my 21st birthday, and I was celebrating the kind of success that no one in the family had ever experienced, and the entire Liverpool music scene was there, and I was dating a freaking movie star who my family was meeting for the first time. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then... My best friend gets wasted, beats up a middle-aged man, punches a girl in the face, and starts ranting about not being queer after a private holiday with our manager. I'd be a little bit out of shape over it. Right. But I have literally never seen or read a single person ask Paul McCartney about having his family gathering upended. No. Not a single book ever mentions that oh yeah john apologized to paul's family too or that brian ever fucking apologized it's not even a concern again all we ever read about is how paul's so unmanageable and such a diva drama queen that brian but, uh, found him the most difficult beetle anyways yeah paul's not coming into the office and grabbing anyone by the nuts <laughs> for, for one uh, he so, would be like, in that's jail not oh my god stupid anyways paul is very much a part of this story so let's pivot to jane and paul and john for just a moment okay Mm. remember this event is very early on in paul and jane's relationship they'd only met only met two months before yeah and let's revisit that introduction for a moment okay jane asher was conducting like a celebrity review for the BBC on a concert at the Royal Albert Hall that included Shane Fenton, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and the Beatles as the headliners. And I pulled a couple relevant quotes about that meeting. The first one is an excerpt from Meet the Beatles, A Cultural History of the Band That Shook Youth, Gender, and the World by Stephen D. Stark. Here's John talking about Jane. We'd never met anyone like her, Lennon said. She was the it girl of the moment. In Lennon's view, she was, quote, smart, dead sexy, and fun, unquote. And here's a quote from Jane from Michael Braun's book, Love Me Do. She said, when I first met the Beatles, I liked them all. Then when I found out that I liked Paul more, the others became angry with me. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And here's another version of that story from someone who was there. This is from Howard Soon's book again. He said, when the Beatles met Jane backstage, they clustered around this pretty celebrity, kidding and flirting, asking, as they typically ask their female fans, if she would marry them. After the show, the Beatles, Shane Fenton, and Jane adjourned to the Chelsea apartment of journalist Chris Hutchins, where the boys popped pills and drank up all the wine in the flat. John, who could be waspish at the best of times, was in a lethal mood without the required amount of alcohol to dampen the effect of the uppers, Hutchins recalls in his memoir, Mr. Confidential. Falling into a contrary mood, John invited Jane to tell him and his friends how she masturbated. Go on, love, he said. Tell us how girls play with themselves. We know what we do. Tell us what you do. Other crude and embarrassing sexual remarks followed. Paul rescued Jane from his boorish friend, taking her into the bedroom where they talked of less provocative matters, such as the food they enjoyed. 
<laughs> Jesus Christ, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh to spell this out, okay, we've got Lennon admitting that Jane was smart, dead, sexy, and fun. Right. Okay. <laughs> and Jane going on record saying that John was nice to her until she started hitting it off with Paul. Yeah. Yes, technically she said the others became angry, but that's obviously Jane <laughs> refraining from calling John out by name because yeah. there are no accounts of Ringo and George being aggressive and no. asking her to masturbate in front of them. Right. <laughs> Like, it's definitely a John only problem, <sighs> yeah. right? Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that John was in love with Jane, or oh, yeah. or that he didn't love Cynthia, or that Jane was better than Cynthia. I just think it's transparent that John is jealous mm-hmm. and openly cock blocking Paul. Yeah, we have witnesses and Jane's own statement about it. Yeah, and um, and then also. You know, from John's perspective, like if your band is just starting to become famous and you're already married with a baby you don't really want. Meanwhile, your best friend is single and dating a movie star. It's easy to see why John would be jealous, right? Yeah. So this isn't to make everything about Paul, God forbid. (laughs) But um, what we're showing you here is that the Beatles history makes Nothing about Paul. Right. Even in events that directly concern and affect him. Right. The violent incident at Paul's 21st birthday is always explained as an isolated reaction to Bob Wooler's provocation. And maybe it was. But John said himself that he had gotten way too drunk that night. Like finishing other people's drinks drunk. Right. And maybe that doesn't mean anything, but it suggests that maybe he wasn't in his best state of mind to begin with. Right. I mean, maybe not. Maybe he just drank too much, you know. But um, before anything happened with Wooler, he was already heckling the scaffold. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is Paul's brother's band. Yeah. They were performing that night, and Mike has talked about it. And... Heckling is one of the most transparent forms of attention-seeking that there is. Mm -hmm. So again, there are jealousy issues with Paul and Jane. Even if they're subtle or inconsistent, they do exist. Like, we just laid them out. And this event is often portrayed like John was minding his own business when this nosy gay man came up and, like, waved the gay agenda in John's straight face or something. And John had no choice to attack him. But we've got clear evidence that John was already creating problems at the party. Right. Before Wooler walked up to him. So, um, And we also know that John's extremely competitive with Paul and jealous when Paul gets too much attention. Right. So what I'm saying is there might be an attempt on John's part, even subconsciously, to pull focus from Paul. Yeah. At this, his 21st birthday, where he is the center of attention. Seriously. With his beautiful movie star girlfriend and all that shit. Yeah. And, by the way, mission accomplished, John, because (laughs) absolutely nobody gives five seconds of thought to Paul's point of view here. Seriously. Nobody thinks that Paul is any sort of factor in John's behavior, even though John's jealousy of Paul's family. Oh, God, yeah. And, you know, John's lack of a close-knit family basically haunts him 
forever and comes out in all sorts of weird, inappropriate, aggressive ways for the rest of his life. Yeah. Like, all of Beetledom has been psychoanalyzing John non-fucking-stop for 50 years. Big glaring siren. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody even notices this. I know. It's so shiny and huge. And everyone's like, what? That's nothing. Oh, my God. Uh, Well, this isn't the first time that John's, like, cock-blocked Paul. We have at least the story from Anthology that George told about the girl with the scissors. Like, John Mm -hmm. cut up her clothes while they were fucking. So, again, just to look at this from Paul's point of view, the... Beatles manager is in love with John and trying to sleep with him. He takes John on holiday, has some sort of sex with him that John isn't completely comfortable with. Rumors immediately spread all over town, and Brian apparently blabs to his friends. And then the whole thing blows up at Paul's birthday. And then for years, people approach him all gossipy, like, What do you think happened in Spain with John and Brian? Ah, that has to be so infuriating. I like Brian. I had a very close relationship with him for years, like I have with Alan, because I'm not going to have some stranger running the scene, that's all. I, I also like to be friends with whoever's going to... I like to work with friends. I was a close with Brian. I did like him. He had great qualities. He was good fun, you know. He had a flair. He, had a, he was a theatrical man rather than a businessman. So in that way, I like him. When he got Scylla, like, his great delight was to dress her and present her. I'm a bit like that, you know. I like to dress Yoko and present her and, and, you know, do that kind of... It's a sort of just enjoyment. I think he wanted to be a dress designer originally, but his parents stopped it. He would have been a great dress designer, you know, because that's what he was made for. He was like that. With us, he was a bit like that. I mean, he literally cleaned us up, you know, and there was great fights between him and me over years and years of me not wanting to dress up and he and Paul wanting me to dress up. And uh, In fact, he and Paul had some kind of collusion to keep me straight, you know, because I kept spoiling the image by beating up Bob Wool of the 21st. The first national paper press we got was the back page of the mirror with me beating up Bob Wool of Paul's 21st. That was the first Lennon hits out story, you know. That's when I discovered I was going to be a kind of, you know, Errol Flynn or one of them people that was always in the paper, you know, like Peter Finch or something, you know, those ones always, Sonata or something like that. That's the first time I noticed I was going to be him. And that was the first national stuff we got. And that was terrible, you know. And I was so bad the next day, they had a BBC appointment and they all went down the train, I wouldn't come. And Brian came to the, into my house in Mendips, you know, and was pleading with me to go down there. And I was so afraid, you know, about what was the outcome of nearly killing him, because I nearly killed him, you know. Because I think he said something about, you know, he insinuated that me and Brian had had an affair in Spain, you know. So he had, I remember it vaguely, I was out in my mind to drink all, you know, when you get down to the point where you drink all the empty glasses, that drunk. And he, had, he was saying, well, come on, John, tell me something like that. He was saying, tell me about you and Brian, we all know like that. And obviously I must have been a, un, uh, frightened of the fag in me to get so angry at that, you know, when you're 21, you want to be a man, all that. And it was the first time I thought, I can kill this guy, you know, I just saw, saw it like from on a screen that if I hit him once more, I'm, that's going to be it, you know. And that's when I gave up violence, because all my life had been like that. And that's when I really got a shock, you know. Apart from occasionally hitting my dear wife, <laughs> uh, the early days when I was a bit... The early days. The early days when I was a bit, you know, crazy. But apart from that, I've been... Because I can't say in front of you I'm non-violent. Because, so, you know, I'll go crazy sometimes. But I, that was the first fight I had to stop doing that. 
Now that we've had that discussion, we'd like to open up the floor for a roundtable and introduce one of our new co-hosts, Iris. Hi, Iris. Hey. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Um, I've been a Beatles fan for a long time, but um, have really gotten into exploring the narratives behind them and some of the things that just aren't talked about a lot. So I've been a huge fan of the show for a long time. So thank you, guys. Iris has been a friend of the show for a long time. Um, Iris and I have been Beatle pen pals for a good couple years now. Like we have had long, long discussions about all sorts of Beatles minutia and rabbit holes we've gone down. And so I'm really happy to finally have you on. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for coming, joining us. Welcome to our cult. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for the new blood. <laughs> on you like vampires. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Basically how this is going to work is we're going to go through a series of questions and kind of lean on those to act as a springboard for us so we can discuss how we can maybe approach these kind of real historical events in an honest and constructive way. So how is this event usually framed when you read about it in your experience? Um, for me, it's usually Wilder teased John about being with Brian or made a pass at him himself, so John beat him up. Uh, details about John assaulting Rose are only in one bio I've read. Um, Philip Norman doesn't mention Rose in his biography on John, but he does say Wilder never got over what happened. So mm. Norman's clearly indicating that this wasn't just something that blew over for Wooler. Um, and he also shared that John said he didn't regret what he'd done. So Norman Reeds is fairly oh. critical of John here, even though he totally sidelined Rose. Uh, Soons does go into detail about the assault on Rose and suggests that something was going on with John even before Wooler talked to him since he was like heckling Mike McCartney's band. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so <laughs> both uh, Soons and Norman say that John behaved poorly at Paul's 21st. Norman says he ruined it. But there's no further reflection on how Paul and his family felt about it or how it had an impact or didn't on John and Paul's relationship. Mm. Yep. I'd have to say I've had exactly the same experience as you. Like, mm. it's pretty much centered around John um, and his psychodrama and what was going on with him. Uh, there's, like, little to no thought at all given to how it impacted Paul other than, like, yeah, it ruined the day. But how? Like, how did it impact their friendship after that? How did it impact Paul's trust in John? Um, how did it impact the woman that got decked in the face and knocked to the ground and assaulted? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. How did it impact the life of the man who was assaulted? Like, yeah, like nobody asks those questions ever. I would like to know more about Rose. I don't mean like her entire life story, like a bio of yeah. her or something. But I just mean like who, like did John know her? Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. You know, who, was she somebody's sister, girlfriend, friend, like just a friend of the band, a friend of somebody else's band? Family member. Like. Exactly. Yeah. Like, God forbid, I'm assuming she's not a McCartney relative. Yeah. Mm, yeah. We know her first name and that's all we know. I mean, we know that she was cool enough to slap him when, yeah. she, when he grabbed her breast. So yeah. good for her that yeah. she at least got that in. Yeah. Like, I'm assuming that she didn't press charges because yeah. there's nothing about it. And also, it, it was Soon's the first one to write about it. Um, I don't I, know. I feel like I did read in one other bio that John had punched a woman or slapped a woman at Paul's 21st, but that yeah. she wasn't identified she, even by name at that I, point. 
Yeah, I agree. I feel like I had read that in an earlier, like an 80s or 90s book or something. But I can't remember whose. But I feel like that's knowledge that I had prior to Soons. Yeah. (laughs) Iris, have you ever seen anybody really talk about the aftermath other than the fact that Wooler was upset by it? Like, is there any, I guess criticism is the only word I can think of about Brian's actions. No, I haven't seen anything about it. It's all, it's presented as like, oh, great. Um, we've escaped from this tanking the Beatles career. And it's just sort of this kind of like, phew, like that could have been worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, we dodged a bullet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I did recently see in like a music blog or whatever, uh, that indicated that, well, John Lennon apologized and they sort of made it, it sort of painted it out to be a sincere apology, mm. even though it was sort of like court mandated <laughs> or, you know, like not like part of the uh, settlement agreement. Or yeah. Whatever. The only time I've seen like the cover up or the aftermath covered is it's like a Cliff's Notes version of what happened. <laughs> well, the, the one of the interesting things is that nobody seems to dig into sort of the um, instigating event, yeah. which is Barcelona, in my, from my view. Mm, yeah. That's true. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah, like the, the, the instigating, the, the triggering event is always framed as Wooler yeah. talking to John. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we know that there were rumors all over yeah. Liverpool because that's been talked about in many books. Mm-hmm. And John himself said there were rumors oh, yeah. flying all over town. Like everybody knew. And certainly if, if they're all over town, then they're going to be at the party also. Like Paul's family has to know. Yeah. yeah. And... Even if they're not like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that like everybody at the party was gossiping about Brian and John. But if John is drunk enough and paranoid yeah. enough, he can certainly assume that they are. Yeah, I was going to say the drunken paranoia. Like John's already paranoid anyway, so he might have had that whole like everybody here must be thinking about this. And it's interesting too that he was like in a like he was in a bad mood early on. I'm wondering if, like, having the entire Liverpool music scene there all in one place might have been a thing. Once like he, a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. And once he gets there, that anxiety coupled with, like, there's a whole bunch of people here who all know this rumor, and they're all here at the same time. And then getting drunk. It just mm. was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. And then Cynthia was in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she'd seen him in a while. Like, they hadn't been, like, out together yeah. Um, yeah. in a while either. Yeah. So everybody knew about this rumor. But then the question was, like, was he prepared for her to be hearing about this in front of a bunch of people? Uh, Potentially, I don't know. Well, and I wonder if, if he hadn't told her beforehand, maybe after all this happened, she was like, you've got to tell me what happened. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and yeah, maybe like he hadn't told her yet at this point and was hoping to not have to tell her at any point. Yeah, exactly. But then, exactly. Yeah, exactly. he's like maybe forced he into it. Yeah. 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 What do you think of the erasure of the victims in this specific incident? I'm really glad Norman's John book did go into how awful all this was for Wooler. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's strange, though, that Rose has been completely left out of the accounts of most authors. And I'm guessing it was a combination of these authors not necessarily being interested in analyzing John's violence against women, on top of them thinking that the big story here was Wooler, right? Because he'd been part of the Beatles story earlier, and there was concern that John's assault of him could have damaged the Beatles' career. Whereas with Rose, maybe we'd have heard more about her if she was someone they'd interacted with before. So 
I can see that Wooler is definitely, you know, the sort of headliner of the story. As you said, he's somebody that they know in their inner circle. He's actually someone they're professionally, you know, related to. Yeah, indebted so, to, right? In a big way. Uh, yeah, exactly. And there was repercussions for him. I mean, not for nothing, but there were no repercussions for assaulting Rose. I mean, there were none. Yeah. She had no recourse. Yeah. We don't even know her last name. We barely know her first name and yeah. no one says it out loud. So, yeah. um, so there's that. So I understand if you're trying to streamline a story that's already extraordinarily long, you know, you're going to you're going to just hit the main points of the story and move on. Um, but at the same time, that's kind of fucked up because we do tend to treat women, you know, especially women who aren't famous or whatever as kind of not important. Yeah. And that's how she's treated in this story, too. She's just, like, not worth a mention most of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this really was Paul's big day. It was his 21st birthday. Um, And everybody in the Liverpool music scene there, all of Paul's family and friends were there. Um, Why do you think this event and the issues surrounding it are never discussed from his point of view at all? Hey, honestly, I love Paul. I mean, I have three different copies of Ram, and it had never (laughs) even occurred to me to look at this from his point of view. And I think that's because we're dealing with decades of writers just not looking at things from his point of view. Mm. Um, I mean, one kind of classic example is that story Paul told Hunter Davies in the authorized bio about snipping a tiny bit of his mom's curtain as revenge for being physically punished by his father. Um, So he called himself sneaky for doing that. And some authors ran with the sneaky Paul interpretation there instead of going like, well, hold on. He's the source for the story. Or why don't we ask what it says about him that he's telling us about this? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was honestly just nodding along at first when I saw that, you know, sneaky and spoiled judgment about that curtain snipping thing. Uh, until I paused and remembered what people have said about this on message boards. Like, why should we judge Paul for reacting negatively to being hit? Like, that's just really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the As fuck? a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mention all this because even as someone who loves Paul, I initially failed to read against that sneaky Paul Green and neglected to think about the curtain stepping from Paul's point of view. Right. And then I failed to think about Paul's point of view again with John's behavior at Paul's 21st. So I just wanted to emphasize how easy it is, even as a Paul fan, to neglect to look at things from his perspective and to fall into reading him and his actions through this shout era Philip Norman lens, like sneaky Paul, manipulative Paul, passive Paul, Paul, who's the only one who could be a pain in the studio and ideas like that that have been repeated for decades in various forms. Yeah. And so it can be hard to entirely break out of them, even for people and biographers who love Paul. And I'm totally on a soapbox about this for two reasons. One is to show how easy it can be, even as like a diehard Paul fan, to slip into thinking in old tropes. And, you know, slipping into these ways of thinking doesn't mean you don't like Paul enough or you aren't a fan. It's just something that's easy to do, given just how long these narratives about Paul and about all the Beatles have been circulating. So while some Beatle authors have admitted to not liking Paul or his music, you don't have to actively dislike or hate him to wind up using old tropes and stereotypes to talk about him. It's just in the water. And secondly, Mm -hmm. looking at something from Paul's point of view or looking at context when it comes to him doesn't mean you're necessarily endorsing whatever he said or did or that you don't or shouldn't care about how anyone else may have experienced things. It just means you want to try to understand what may have been going on for him. 
And, you know, of course, Paul's not the only one impacted by stereotyping or by people not being able or willing to look at things from his point of view. You know, like, I honestly didn't realize until this year that George and Patty were having serious relationship problems toward the end of the Beatles. And I hadn't thought about how that could have influenced George's moods, attitudes and actions during that period until recently. Well, you're right. Like, I love how you said it's in the water because it is so pervasive that like even it was really just a few years ago that I started to be like, hey, wait a minute. Sometimes even all of their point of view to a certain extent, except for John, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, this one is particularly egregious to me because it's his 21st birthday. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. It's like if it's your quinceanera or your your bar mitzvah or whatever. Yeah, sweet 16. Uh, yeah, like any kind certainly of. certainly. Yeah check in with like oh and by the way how did it affect this other band member like they tell this story as if it happened at a stranger's house or like an acquaintance right yeah it's instead of one of the other beatles yeah and like the the (laughs) co-leader of the group his songwriting partner his best friend it's not even like a minor person in his life it's like aside from his wife the major person in his world yeah, I mean, I definitely think that goes back to the the old school sort of shout era idea of like John Lennon's band, the Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, like John Lennon and the Beatles, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's got like these three guys who just sort of come along yeah. and are like happy to tag along with him and they get to be in his band. Yeah. And, and like, they're know. like the backdrop to his life. Exactly. The backdrop to his life. And, and it, at this time, I mean, there's lots of people who position Brian Epstein as more important than Paul McCartney mm. to the Beatles. Yeah. Mm. I mean, he gets a bigger role in the Beatles story sometimes than, than Paul McCartney does at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I have noticed that. It's ridiculous yeah. what things sort of take precedent in the story. And again, I think it's just a lot of this is just the fact that patterns have been set and they are really, really, really hard to break. Mm-hmm. Like every writer just follows the same pattern yeah. over and over and no, over it's again. A, it's a, like a boilerplate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, here is how you write a Beatles book. And then, then I was just going to say also, if you're trying to build up this case that Paul doesn't like Brian because I don't know whatever the arguments these books make, I guess just because Paul's a diva or something. I don't know why they think he doesn't like Brian other than for professional reasons or because he, you know, disagrees with some of Brian's managerial decisions and his favoritism towards John and his possible whisking John away and having sex with him. Other than that, which are all legitimate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My book. yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know why they think he doesn't like him, but if you're, if you're literally trying to make some sort of argument that Paul has an irrational problems with like Brian just to be problematic because he has to be the center of attention or something like maybe you want to investigate this incident where Paul's 21st birthday was ruined. Maybe like look into that. Perhaps, perhaps that plays into Paul's resentment somehow. Yeah. It seems like it would be worth exploring, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're genuinely interested in like, gee, what was up with Paul and Brian? Hmm. So with Lewison, like, I just realized, and yeah, he hasn't gotten here yet. He's still not at Wooler. So I'm just like, man, like, how oh. is he going to cover this? Is he, like, oh, has no. he talked to Rose? I don't know. 
one thing he is good at is sniffing people out or finding stuff. So maybe he'll find her. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, because it doesn't serve the agenda to make John look better. Of course. Mm. And also, um, it doesn't. Like what we're doing right now, like exploring this issue and all the re- repercussions that it might have. And, you know, again, if there's naysayers out there who's like, well, Paul never mentioned it as being a problem. It's like, well, Paul never mentions anything being a fucking problem. <laughs> yeah. you know? That's a great point. Yeah. He's just like, oh, well, only problem he has is like Alan Klein. Basically. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they're like behind the scenes. Paul McCartney was complaining all the time. It's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe like track down his complaints yeah. and see if they're valid rather than just being like, oh, what a squeaky wheel he was. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, I actually want to know more about his complaints and what was going on. I always found that intriguing. I'm like, wait, what happened? And nobody yeah. wants to go there. They're just like, oh, he's just spoiled and so hard to manage. Well, it, it, there's some things, I, I, I think some of this just boils down to like, there are some stereotypes that we like and some that we don't like, mm. or, or there are, you know, there are roles that we like the, to put these people in. And mm. there are roles that we, even if they're accurate, we're like, nah, I don't like that. I don't accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, people accept John as a wife beater that fits. They go, yeah, I believe that, but they don't see Ringo that way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or Paul, yeah. you know, the, or like people like Paul being nice to fans and bossy in the studio like those fit they're like <laughs> we're gonna die on those hills right yeah. those are the two things that we believe about paul forever he's nice to fans and he's a friendly dude who's just a normal guy like people believe that yeah, they love that myth uh, oddly they believe that and then and then they also believe that he's like super controlling and and whatever so even though that might be partially true, you know, it's like the half that's not true. People don't have any time for that. So, and I think Brian has just become the super soft, harmless, benign, closeted gay guy who, who sat at home every night with a John Lennon pillow, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> smooching it every night. I'm glad I'm I wasn't like, drinking water when you said that. Oh yeah, my God. Too. <laughs> that's the image you get from the fan base nowadays it's true yes. yeah. except he also has pillows of the other ones too that he doesn't smooch but just oh because he loves them all so much equally equally yeah of course of course <laughs> so. well and he's also like a dad yep. he's like would just do anything for them because he's so fair and righteous and and uh selfless all the time mm-hmm. Yep. And not greedy. And not greedy at all. <laughs> no, he doesn't yeah. like money one bit. Nope. Like <laughs> Exactly. He doesn't want to get paid at all. He wants to do this for free, just out of love. Definitely not out of lust. So that's actually a really good segue into our next question. Um, since we've noticed a reluctance to be critical of anything Brian did, like people will occasionally uh, discuss his financial mismanagement, but... Nobody ever discusses his actual ethics. Um, why do we think that is? Um, I think it's because he's understood to have had good intentions and love for the group as a whole. And also because he died young and wasn't able to answer questions mm. about contracts and Spain and so on. So people really want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And there is an element, of course, there's an element of tragedy to his death, Mm -hmm. which makes him a really sympathetic figure. And, you know, people feel sorry for his demise, right? 
we know that he struggled with depression really badly. You know, he had ro- he had romantic problems. Yeah. Um, right. He had a kind of a strained relationship with his mother, right? Mm-hmm. And his father had died like a month or two before. He's got problems with his love life. He's possibly being blackmailed. Yes. Yeah. He's got issues with his family, you know, like, and so he had, he had a tragic death and he may, and he may or may not have committed suicide. You know, it may have been an accidental overdose. It might've been a suicide. It might've been a combination of both, but in any case, it's sad. And that's, you know, people don't want to go hard on him for, mm-hmm. for all those reasons. Yeah. And that makes sense. Similar to Stuart. I mean, this poor gifted painter who was struck down you know in the prime of his youth um i guess he was 21 you know that's tragic there's no way around that it's just it's terrible so of course he turned you know he he has become an angel and he and he's remembered as an angel um, which is also fucking understandable when a 21 year old person dies tragically out of nowhere yeah you know you want to remember them as a hero or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I get that. It's it's hard. It's hard to be objective. I mean, I'm yeah. not even ask. I'm not saying that, like, Stuart was a war criminal <laughs> and he did anything yeah. terrible that we need to go after him hard for. You know, I, I don't think he was. I'm just saying it's, it's hard to even be objective mm. yeah. about him because you don't want to say anything bad. And I think especially because – Queer visibility has increased so much, so much in the past 20 years. Um, I think people nowadays are just like, we want to shine a positive light on Brian. And we, because there was a a lot of Brian's history um, is sort of mired in gossip and shame and weird blackmail and, you know, abuse. And there's a lot of stuff that makes people uncomfortable and they don't like. So they, so. I feel like he's just been whitewashed over into something that's like more positive. Like he's just a sweet, loving, flag waving, proud gay man. You know, I feel like that's sort yeah. of our modern interpretation of him. Yeah. So um, nobody wants to really dig into all this, dig into the fact that he possibly made some shady mistakes sometimes or that he acted selfishly at times. Yeah. Or God forbid that he didn't always act in the best interests of his clients. Which I think in the Beatles case, you know, if the question is, did he act in the best interest of the group as opposed to his own interests, you know, probably apart from the occasional greed or whatever, he probably did act in the band's best interest most of the time. Yeah. But if if we're ranking the Beatles in terms of who is most important to keep happy from Brian's perspective, I think that's a fair conversation to have. Yeah. I don't like sacred cows. It's not a good MO, Mm-mm. especially if you're going to be extremely critical of the Beatles themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you not also be critical of all the people around them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then that's another excellent segue. Um, the next follow-up, talking about Brian and his ethics. Um, and the fact that when he was taking John on the trip to Barcelona, just the two of them, and sending the other members of the band on a separate vacation. There's definitely a power differential there that's never brought up in discussions about this incident. Um, I'm just wondering, why do you guys think that is? 
Well, I think some people go, well, Brian probably wasn't consciously using the power differential to get what he wanted, so the power differential doesn't matter. I run into quite a few men who don't feel like there's a power differential in some of their relationships. Mm -hmm. So they aren't consciously putting any pressure on. And so they feel like the other party can't possibly be feeling pressured when they might just be feeling pressured because of the fact of the power differential. Well, I love what you said about um, how the if the person who has the power in the relationship doesn't think that they're leveraging their power in a certain yeah. situation because the other person isn't giving them feedback that they're doing that, it creates this weird feedback loop because the other person isn't going to say, I think you're abusing your power. In terms of a power differential, if we're talking about um, one person who is older, uh, richer, more mature, more has more connections, has been around the block, yeah. um, versus a younger man who is reliant on that person to help with their career and who also is not sexually experienced. We don't know every sexual experience that John had in his entire life. Yeah. Obviously we don't know that, (laughs) you know, we can't prove his level of, of uh, sexual experience, but I think we can safely assume that it wasn't a ton of, of same sex experience at that point. Yeah. You know, it was probably something, but it uh, presumably was not a whole lot. So that does put him in a, in a junior position, so to speak. And that's not even factored in at all because, again, this conversation never even gets that far. Yeah. Right? No, it doesn't. <laughs> no. The burden of proof on whether or not this happened is ridiculous. Mm. If two people said that a man and woman slept together, no one would question it. And if fucking ten people said it, including like the people involved yeah. then nobody would ever question it it's, right we we have sufficient evidence to move forward but again we haven't gotten to that point to even like open up this discussion to like what were the repercussions possibly that it had on the group which is why beatles history isn't going to get anywhere because we're so far back Maybe that's a byproduct of historiography or, mm. or you know, history. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, because maybe there, maybe you do need so much corroboration and so many people to go on record and whatever, whatever, whatever. But it just doesn't seem that that applies across the board. No, it doesn't. You know what I mean? It seems like it only applies to things that people find controversial, which again, in this situation is simply like a a social taboo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I'd have to agree. If this were heteronormative sex, nobody would even question it. There's something else that we need to talk about, which is that um, gay people and especially gay men for so long have in history been portrayed as predators. So I understand that, any discussion of Brian doing anything um, sketchy with John is going to be ground that is tread very, very, very lightly Mm. because there are a lot of not just negative, but like really harmful, harmful stereotypes that have done massive amounts of damage to queer people throughout history. So we're mindful of that. And obviously we know that, and um, we want to take that into consideration, too, even when we're like, again, we're, we're discussing an issue of um, questionable, you know, consent um, or, you know, a situation where there's drugs and alcohol involved or whatever. Those are situations that happen. 
Yeah. Those are realistic situations that everybody has to deal with. Young people have to deal with, especially, you know, anybody who drinks or takes drugs, which is a lot of people, you know, it's likely to be involved at some point during a sexual encounter. So that's just like something you have to talk about and something you have to be aware of. And it's a situation that many people have been in, again, that isn't necessarily um, a sexual assault, but um, might not have been an ideal situation. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's all we're talking about in terms of Brian and John. We're not trying to paint Brian as a predator or uh, we're definitely not trying to paint gay men of the sixties as predators or, Definitely or, not. or no. whatever, or queer people or anything, of yeah. course. And again, when there's a historical stigma attached uh, to a group of people, it's very hard to discuss issues like this, mm. that, you know, but that doesn't mean that we just get to not discuss them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's more problematic to avoid discussing them out it of fear. Is. Mm-hmm. You can't just pretend that it's that queer people don't have the same, uh, ethics when it comes to consent and that they're not held to the same standard. Of course they are. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, you know, because people are so unwilling to unpack the, you know, the incident itself and the power differential, then they completely skip over having a discussion about how this impacted the band, Mm -hmm. um, the repercussions of it on the other members of the band on John himself. How do you guys think it did impact those those relationships. Yeah, I mean, I honestly am interested to know how Paul didn't throttle John for the period of late April through June of 63. <laughs> like, hands permanently wrapped around his throat should have been like... Uh, John and Brian's trip to Spain happened about a month and a half before this birthday thing. Klaus Warman said that Paul was upset about John and Brian's trip when the rest of them were all in Tenerife. Yeah. Here's what Klaus Warman told Leslie Ann Jones. And it's, it's his interpretation, but it does indicate that other people who were around Paul at the time thought he felt isolated and resentful thanks to John and Brian's mm. trip and Brian's being in love with John. So this is what Klaus Forman said. Although Paul was the friendly one, within the setting of the band, he was always slightly apart from the others on his own. It was triggered by the fact that Brian Epstein was in love with John, so Paul felt isolated. Even after Brian had gone, it was something he always felt. Man. <laughs> that's pretty hmm. strong. And that's, you know, interesting that, that Borman is saying that he always felt that way. I think that's debatable. I think we could probably find things that maybe kind of challenge that a little. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And class wasn't always there. Yeah. For the rest of it. yeah. <laughs> 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 right. It's like just imagining him peering through Paul's window and like, <laughs> trying to get a sense of if he felt isolated. Um, but, but yeah, here's like what he, go, he continues on with. Um, I remember after they had a number one hit with She Loves You in 1963, they came out to stay with me in my father's house in Tenerife, Paul, George, and Ringo, but no John. He'd gone on holiday with Brian. While George was busy trying to befriend the girl in the shop down the road, showing her the cover mm-hmm. of the single, and Ringo drifted <laughs> through the days, Paul resented John going off. It showed. 
And I love how you guys brought in the idea of jealousy here, that part of what was going on may have been John's jealousy of Paul. Um, and it sounded like Paul understood that or is able to rationalize John's behavior in some other way. Um, like he later said he'd rationalized it over how do you sleep and John's comments about him in the 70s. And so somehow this allowed them to continue without an obvious breach. Like I've never really heard of this yeah. um, period being hugely stressful for them. Like you hear sometimes about um, 65 through early 66 is like mm -hmm. kind of the mini ice age in John and Paul um, relations, but never anything about this. So I was just thinking in terms of like John's jealousy, right? Like you mentioned the relationship with Jane, right? And then this, this big yeah. loving family that held this 21st birthday for Paul. Whereas for John's 21st, it's, it's Paul and John on vacation in Paris. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I just also wondered, I've always kind of been curious about the extent to which they knew that George Martin was kind of toying with making either Paul or John the lead. Because Please Please Me is out in March 63, so it's resolved by the party and all this. So, you know, the immediate concern over Paul potentially being elevated like that should have dissipated, but emotions aren't always rational. And maybe Paul also got that John had been troubled, maybe by the idea of Paul possibly being put out in front of him. And so therefore, Paul yep. was more understanding of John trying to get closer to Brian, even though he was still upset about it. So maybe Paul understood a little bit more about why, but this is all just, just pure speculation. Well, and the stuff that Klaus said about Paul being isolated really makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, again, it's Klaus's point of view or Klaus's impression, right? It's not a direct quote from Paul or anything. Um, and he doesn't say, Paul told me he felt isolated. You yeah. Know? It's Klaus's impression, but it's, it seems reasonable to me. And it, it makes me sad because if Paul's feeling isolated, that's not fair. Nope. Mm -mm. It's not cool and it's not nice. And I've, I've literally never seen any Beatle writer ever suggest that like that wasn't cool. Yeah. And that, and that Paul deserved better in, in the band that he helped. I mean, I don't even like to say that he helped because he was instrumental in making this band a, a international huge success. Yeah. I mean, the idea that Beatlemania just happened, like, it's just Brian and John's doing, and Paul was just kind of there for the uh, no, ride is absurd. Yeah. That's John Lennon and Paul McCartney and also George Harrison and, and Ringo Starr. Yeah. But like Lennon and McCartney – they're the nexus of the Beatles. Yeah. It's ridiculous to suggest that it's okay that Paul McCartney's feeling isolated in his own fucking band. Yeah. No, especially when he is the co-leader of that band. I do think it was really good and healthy that Paul had a life outside of the Beatles in the mid-60s. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. But I think if this dynamic goes established where he's feeling like the odd one out early then no wonder he's not really going out of his way to spend extra personal time with the other Beatles. Yeah. And I feel like all of these early events with the Barcelona trip, um, with the songwriting credit thing, really might have been the first initial push where some trust was lost and a little bit of like, well, you know, I'm going to have my own life on the side mm. for Paul yeah. happened. Well, and again, I often see it phrased not so much with authors, but let's say maybe with like uh, commentators, podcasters, Beatle chatter people, or whatever. <laughs> um, 
you know, I often say framed like, oh, well, he felt isolated because he was the, the lame black one. sheep and nobody liked him. <laughs> oh, and, you know, he, he deserved was, to be oh. in that position and whatever. Right, he was the nerd but, um, who made everybody work. <laughs> he was a square. But that's not good leadership. It's not good management. It's not good group politics. It doesn't matter if you don't like him or if you think that the other Beatles don't like him, which I hate to break it to you. They all loved him. Yeah. But like, even if you think they don't like him, it's still not a good policy. Like, you know, exactly. Like, yeah. like, it, it's still not fair. And also your manager, part of Brian's fucking job is keeping the band together and keeping everybody happy. And also to manage John and Paul mm-hmm. and to make sure that they're getting along. Yeah. yeah. And to make sure that shit is equitable be- between them, or at least that they feel like it's equitable, or at least that they feel like, you know, if it's not equitable in one area that it is in the other and that he, that they're both getting what they want. Like, that's his job. Yeah. So if one of the partnership is unhappy, that falls on Brian. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fall on Paul. Like, he should just accept whatever comes to him. Yeah. That's ludicrous. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just to wrap everything up, um, the whole concept of separating the art from the artist has been discussed at much length in more recent years mm-hmm. on a lot of platforms. Um, so yeah. we're obviously all huge fans of the Beatles, and we still choose to engage with their art and you know enjoy them and follow them and analyze them despite all their problematic behavior. Um, so yeah. what do you guys think is the most positive, constructive, but still honest way to unpack the more problematic aspects of the Beatles story? I am a fan of looking at them or like people as the whole picture. The picture isn't complete without some of the negative stuff that's there, but the negative should be looked at as part of the whole rather than standing in for the whole as part of some clickbait headline. That's the kind of thing I can't stand, where it's just like, let's just take someone being their worst yeah. and just put it yeah. out there and just expect people to know whether that was common for them or not. So, yeah, so I think context is important for looking at all of them. But the issue is sometimes people feel like providing context is excusing problematic behavior. And that line looks different to different people, right? So I think you have to kind of feel to say, like, look, Maybe I can understand why this person was reacting in a certain way, but that doesn't excuse whatever problems that caused, right? Or like that doesn't mean that whoever was hurt by that doesn't matter or wasn't hurt, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, that was very well said, Iris. And I think we're good to end on that note. So thank you for joining us in this very special episode of ACOM. It was amazing having you, and I definitely cannot wait to have you on again. Thank you so much for having me, and this has been a lot of fun. Welcome to the ACOM family. You're you're here, um, and you can never leave. <laughs> We're looking forward to I know you've got some uh, great episodes brewing. Oh, yes. And I'm really excited about them. Thank you, Phoebe. Coming up, I'd like to do an episode on death and the Beatles, since there's so much to explore there, from the music to how death influenced band members and band dynamics. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Another Kind of Mind. We appreciate all your comments, likes, and shares on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can also email us with any questions or feedback. If you enjoy Another Kind of Mind, 
please consider leaving us a positive review or five-star rating on iTunes. Your feedback helps other students of the Beatles find us. <laughs>